0: It's actually been a sad week because uh, there have uh, been two well-known celebrities take their own lives this week Um, and that causes some cultural reflection. Uh, The Centers for Disease Control has indicated that there is and has been an uptick in suicides in the last decade and a half. Um, The thing about the last two well-known people take their lives as they were where many people dream of being at the very top of their game. Wealth, fame, yet what they discovered is what so many before them have discovered is that they may have climbed the ladder of success and found it leaning against the wrong wall. But all of us have had seasons, particularly those of us who've gone through and are maybe in the middle of midlife seasons of Sadness when you realize that life has just worked out differently than you thought it was going to. And you add to that, if it's the case with anyone, uh, any kind of chemical depression or any kind of um, relational stresses that would be, uh, you know, added to that stew. And you've got a bad recipe. And without Jesus, it can be uh, almost impossible to bear that burden. Uh, The gospel of Jesus Christ does not promise that this life will be easy in spite of what the televangelists and the Prosperity Gospel people will be saying on your local Christian television station, Uh, but if you don't have hope, you do get discouraged and you do despair of life. If you don't believe that God exists, then you wonder what this life is really all for if you don't believe that there is the promise of a comforted and easier afterlife without stress and sin, without crying and dying, then it's really challenging to work your way through the purpose of going through this life when its moments are sad. I say this this morning for two reasons. One is that if you are somebody who has had suicidal thoughts... Uh, we want you to know that this is a safe place for you to be able to talk to me or other staff or elders or really anybody in our church. This is uh, a, this is the place you should go and say that. It's not a place of shame. Um, we've all had seasons of darkness in our lives, places that we didn't want to go, damp, dank, despair. And, and so I, I can empathize with where you might be. And I would just encourage you, you are not alone. Um, I believe in an evil force and this Satan as the head of that force and I think he will lie to you and whisper in your ear that you are all by yourself and you're the only one that's ever felt this way and that's just not true. It's a lie. You aren't alone. I mention the notion of afterlife because we will bump up against that in our text today. In fact, it's how we're going to begin our sermon is talking about what Jesus is saying to a group of religious leaders and then what we can glean from those same verses about uh, what it means uh, for us to accurately and, and correctly translate what Jesus has to say. The present reign of Jesus and the future consummation of his kingdom are of great comfort to persecuted people people, also to those who would simply be weary. And today's study of John will touch on this and also help us to see the great care we must give to listening to and understanding what Jesus is saying. In our context from John chapter 7, verse 32, this will tell us exactly the setting for our discussion it says, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. We, uh, we last week spoke of this encounter Jesus had at this festival where he is preaching and teaching, and they're asking questions, and people are starting to believe in him, and then there's discussion about whether he's good or not. And some people actually made the observation about the religious leaders and said, well, he's saying and teaching whatever he wants and they're not doing anything. And so the Pharisees are hearing all of this. In fact, the the people were muttering. That word is significant. It actually means whispering. The people knew what would happen to them if they speculated too loudly about who they thought Jesus was. And so they muttered They kept it quiet. And yet there was a group of Pharisees close enough to all of this to know that this was the discussion going on. The people knew that if they spoke too loudly, there would be separation between them and their culture, though the religious culture they were in would marginalize them or persecute them or cut them off. Have you ever felt like that before? You took a position, you framed your life in a certain way amongst a certain friend group, You decided to communicate to people that you had a biblical worldview on a particular subject, and then you felt the emotional distance that people began to put between you and them. Perhaps you had a conversion experience where your family was not happy about that. And there are lots who have had that happen. In this context, this community knew, as is the case in a lot of religious communities, that if I come up and say I believe in who this Jesus guy is, There is going to be massive pushback, so they kept it quiet. The cultural litmus test, if you haven't experienced it yet, will happen at one point in your life to find out if you are one of those kind of Christians who actually listens to what Scripture says and believes that Jesus actually physically, bodily rose from the dead 2,000 years ago and is reigning on high. For Christians in countries around the world, this is a daily experience. They have to whisper what they believe for fear of what will happen to them. I spoke just this past week with a brother who spent some time in China as a missionary. And the experience of the Chinese house church is that they have to keep what they do very much on the down low. Or the state-run church and the state government will actually react angrily and persecute them. This whispering was taking place. Jesus' enemies had heard of it, and so while up to this point they had talked about taking out Jesus, they hadn't really done anything about it, and now they make a formal commission for Jesus' arrest. They send temple officers to apprehend him, presumably to bring him to trial. They believe they're going to get a conviction, and they're going to be able to execute Jesus. So they finally started to put some action to their plan, In the next three weeks, we are going to finish out John chapter 7 and look more closely at the nature of our relationship to Scripture itself. This week, we'll talk about the science of interpreting Jesus' teaching. Next week, we'll put that into practice with what the Scripture says about the Holy Spirit. And then in two weeks we'll look at the responsibility that each believer has for knowing and integrating the words of Christ, the scriptures, into every area of life. For those of you who get into the rhythm of a sermon, sometimes I'll refer to them as clock watchers. You know, they'll recognize, okay, that first point went by really fast, and he says there are two points. We're going to get out of here early. I just want you to know the second point's a little longer. So, You know, just so you're not disappointed, like, wow, this one's going on forever. Goodness gracious. Just want to give you a free heads up there. While the backdrop of Jesus' declaration to this group of religious leaders is, I'm about to leave, and you're going to look for me and not be able to get to me. uh, There are two things about interpreting Scripture in our life that we can glean from today's passage. That are really important to us, and I'm going to call them uh, uh, interpretation classes. You know, interpretation 101. We'll go there first. All right, this is the first principle in in biblical hermeneutics, the science of interpretation. The first principle that we need to incorporate in our own lives, in terms of us reading Scripture and how we understand what Jesus is saying, is is that we read Jesus's words through other Scriptures. Or, Another way of saying it would be that Scripture interprets Scripture. This is principle one in biblical interpretation. We begin with what Jesus said. He was telling these leaders, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am coming, where I am, you cannot come. So this is quite a declaration And now they have to figure out what does he mean. For us, we can figure out what Jesus is saying primarily through looking at what he said in other places. Or what we know in the arc of Jesus' story, we have the benefit of seeing what he meant. And we can look back upon what Jesus said and say, oh, that's what he was talking about because we have the benefit of historical hindsight. In their case, they just were kind of guessing at stuff. This still happens to this day where people don't take into account what other scriptures say, or the Ark of Scripture, or what Jesus actually said to define things. And they just go, I think Jesus meant this. And you're like, well, how and why? And why would I believe that you what you think is what Jesus said? So we apply this principle of reading Jesus' words through other scriptures. When I studied in depth this passage this week, where I am, you cannot come, I... I kept thinking, I've heard that somewhere else, and I can't remember where. And so I Google searched, where I'm going, you cannot follow, and it came up, Sean Connery, Hunt for Red October. And, and then I was like, yes, I remember this. Where I go, you cannot follow. You know, and, and I just, I remember. And, and, and so I say that to point out that culturally speaking, it's really easy for people to just go, oh. I know what Jesus was saying. It was kind of a Sean Connery moment. That's not how you do biblical interpretation. When trying to figure out what Jesus means, it's best to go and see what he has to say. Uh, Oftentimes, people, especially critics of Scripture's reliability, will be guilty of trying to explain what Jesus means, not by referencing what he said or what he said in other places, but by what they think in the modern culture what Jesus must have meant. So they're interpreting it through something that's actually current, which seems crazy to me. I'll tell you, I hear Christian ministers do this a lot, um, and it's, it's bothersome to me uh, when I listen to a sermon where a minister will claim a special gift of revelation from God about one of Jesus' parables. And, you know, it's as if they were given some divine insight but I'm flabbergasted that they didn't like go just a few verses later when Jesus says, this is what I meant by the parable of the weeds. And their interpretation, supposedly given by the power of the Holy Spirit, looks nothing like Jesus' explanation of what he meant. So it's possible as a so-called Christian minister to go to Scripture and just say, this is what I want this passage to say because it forwards my agenda in some ways instead of, Scripture interpreting Scripture. Jesus was speaking to his hearers about his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. We know that from other scriptures. This is a conversation he had post his resurrection. Jesus was crucified. He was buried on Sunday. He rose from the grave and has this encounter of revealing himself to Mary Magdalene. And it says in John 20, verses 16 through 18, that Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have yet not ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to his disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Jesus is speaking about his ascension, and this isn't just the going up into heaven. He's speaking of it in terms of what they wrote in the Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent. These were the songs they sang when a king was anointed. The king would come into town, and they'd have a parade, and they would march up into Jerusalem, and people would sing these great psalms. In Israel, the nation's parade looked a lot like what we do when we have a presidential inauguration. People line the streets and the president walks down the street or rides in some kind of protected vehicle and waves to the crowd. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the ascension, which is a big event. Uh, R.C. Sproul once wrote, Jesus spoke about his departure from earth by way of ascension. I am convinced that the most neglected dimension of the life of Jesus in the church today is his ascension. Without the ascension, both the cross and resurrection are meaningless. The climax of Jesus' earthly ministry came when he ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. That was his investiture, his coronation, when the Father crowned him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples and declared, and we read in Matthew 28, that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. This coronation, this celebration, this amazing moment in eternity is what happened after he appeared to Mary Magdalene and he said, hey, wait, I haven't ascended yet. It gives me joy to think about the role that Mary Magdalene got to play in the story of Christ. I mean... If you were to think about the one person that the king of kings would visit on his way to his ascension, on, the, on his ascension to the, the throne, in that culture you would not have picked a woman or a prostitute. What that tells me is there's great grace in the gospel. Jesus did not see her like culture saw her. Jesus saw her as a completely new person, forgiven of all the gunk. He, he, he looked at her and was like, hey, I, I want to make a, I'm going to visit one person on my way, <laughs> and it's going to be Mary. I just think that's remarkable to me. There's a lot of fascination lately with British royalty. I, I'm guilty of it, too. I've watched both seasons of The Crown on Netflix, and I watch all kinds of documentaries, and confusing fantasy and reality, and then of course some of you stayed up all night to watch the wedding of Prince Harry, and, and people are just enamored with it. And it is sort of fascinating because there's a there's something we don't have. I remember in the John Adams HBO uh, documentary series, they had uh, the king quipped to John Adams that he feared he hoped that the uh, the that Americans would not be too sad for their want of a monarchy. And there is some truth to that. There's something really kind of royal and glorious and glamorous and majestic about having a royal family. You know, uh, the president is the best that we got, and for some, that's not even very good these days. So, the good news for Christians is this. One day we will get to be a part of one of these royal celebrations. You know, I, I watched highlights, mind you, of the Prince Harry wedding. And, you know, there's celebrities there. You see the, the Beckhams walking in, and you see the Cloonies, you know, and you kind of feel like, wow, if I was a rich, famous millionaire, I could go to the royal wedding and strut into the pictures of the paparazzi in my Armani suit. Maybe you didn't think that, Sorry. A little too much about your pastor there. So, but you know, this is the thing. One day you're going to be invited to this. One day you're going to a royal celebration, the celebration of the feast of the King, the Lamb of God. There is going to be uh, an event that reveals the majesty of Jesus with such clarity and such mind-blowing experience of seeing how Holy and powerful and loving and kind. And you're going to be George and Amal Clooney. You and your significant other. You're going to be in the in crowd because you know Jesus. You're part of his family. You're going to see up close a a revelation of this kind of glory that would put anything that an earthly country would do to shame. Jesus is called the king of kings. The kings of this earth will bow down to Jesus. And you and I will be there to see it. So when we read scripture and Jesus says, I am going. And he says to Mary, I'm ascending. We have to understand scripture in light of other scriptures. Jesus is talking about something really amazingly beautiful. Interpretation 201. Okay, if Interpretation 101 is we read Scripture through other Scriptures, Interpretation 201 is where the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, failed miserably. And that principle is we don't read Scripture through presupposition. And all of us will bring our own set of baggage to the interpretation of Scripture. Scripture. And this happens within the church where people are arguing about theological issues. It happens in the culture where the culture is arguing with the church about theological issues. People take what they've experienced, what they think they know, and they impose it onto the words of Jesus. And you see this working itself out in the life of these, of these Jewish leaders. Verses 35 through 36 read, The Jews said to one another, so you can have, see them having this conversation. Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. The jealousy of the religious leaders reinforces what Jesus said in our study last week regarding the invalidity of teaching done for one's own glory. Uh, the need for the crowd 's approval was a fairly significant thing to the Pharisees, paramount in many ways to them, and humbling to those of us who are in ministry, realizing that if we 're ever concerned about the crowd, we are acting more like a Pharisee than we are about Jesus, because Jesus in, paradoxically needed the crowd to die, needed the crowd to not take up his cause as the purpose for his life, the Father's plan was was for him to be crucified and have the mob cheer for it. So think about that. Jesus is actually needing the crowd to turn against him as opposed to needing the crowd to say, we're on your side. Jesus didn't need their approval. The Jewish leaders and many of us could say, we are far too dependent on human affirmation. And here... The, the Pharisee frustration with Jesus is palpable. Uh, they speculate in this language, if you read it the way I was reading it, you see what many commentators are saying. Scholars say that they were really speculating in a mocking fashion the reason for Jesus' departure. They knew of the reduction in his crowd numbers and his coming into the temple and the division that was experienced. The number of people that were taking up arms against him and they effectively said to, and amongst themselves, what? Where is he going to go? He can't do business here in Jerusalem. Is he going to go out amongst the dispersion? Amongst the deplorable Gentiles? They, they were offended by the implication that Jesus told them that there was something he was going to do that they weren't going to be able to take care of. He, he put himself in a place of power and authority and, and told them, I'm going somewhere and you're not going to be able to find me. In a very real sense, Jesus was telling them that their rejection of him would one day come back to haunt them. Uh, in one sense, those who rejected the Messiah would one day then be in the presence of Jesus and quickly seek to ingratiate themselves to him and it would be too late. You'll look for me, but you won't find me. Jesus is obviously talking about his ascension and the implications for those who were in his immediate context, but the warning is still real for all of us, and that is we are called today to confront what we believe about Jesus. When we stand face to face in front of him, it will be too late. The Jewish leadership was irritated by Jesus, so they weren't in a posture to hear his word and understand what he was saying, let alone embrace it and build their life around it. Often in John's gospel, you'll see this misinterpretation of symbolic language or missing the big picture for the the pressing of our own presuppositions or in the context that people would press their own suppositions about what Jesus was saying uh, for instance, you remember back last chapter, John 6, 54, Jesus said, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's clearly not supposed to be taken literally, but there were people that misinterpreted it and thought Jesus was off his rocker. In the Pharisee and the Sadducee and the Jewish leadership's disdain for Jesus, they had an inability It manifested itself as an unwillingness to recognize his teachings as coming from God. They were unable to think in spiritual terms. It reminded me of what the great British theologian Matthew Henry once said, None so blind as those that will not see, that will not heed. Christ's sayings are plain to him that understandeth, and difficult only to those who are disposed to quarrel. We have to be careful not to impose what we presuppose onto what Jesus is saying. The Jews' minds went immediately to the earthly explanations of Jesus' teaching, uh, namely, erroneously presuming that he was going to be just one more Jew that was moving outside of Israel, dispersed among the pagans in the dispersion. Over the previous centuries before Jesus, Jews had been exiled out of their country. Many returned. Some didn't. They were looked at with a disrespectful eye by those who cared enough about Israel to come home. They, for whatever reason, found success in Babylon or other places and decided, nah, I'll pass on going back to the motherland. And they were referred condescendingly to as the Jews of the dispersion. And then you have an even greater disrespect for and disdain for non-Jews in foreign lands. And so, of course, they would go, oh, if he's not going to take care of business here in Jerusalem, what's he going to do? Go into the dispersion? As believers, we need to be careful not to read what Jesus or other scriptures say through a lens of our commitments. You know, I, I got eye surgery last summer, you may wonder why are you still wearing glasses. I see you perfectly right now. In order for me to read this, I have to wear reading glasses. So I'm still very familiar with the daily experience of having to see things through a lens. And so if we're not careful as people, we will have a preconceived idea and then we will read what Jesus is saying through that preconceived idea. And, And that's what you have to be careful of. You have to be cautious of. This is particularly true when we discuss with other Christians issues that aren't central to the gospel. Uh, Critics reading Jesus's words through an already understood supposition is really common today. It's as common today as it was then. It's also a technique of what is called the Christian heretic, the person who's twisted scripture and created a a cult-like atmosphere. Um, it, or even some who wouldn't even be categorized or would be loath to be called a cult, but they've gotten into some really weird, unorthodox theological ways, and uh, and they've done so by reading onto Scripture what they have decided is true about Scripture. I'll give you a for instance. Um, the Apostle John, the one who's written this gospel that we study, also wrote three epistles, First John, Second John, Third John, and then the second verse of Third John, which is a very brief letter that John wrote, the, the second verse, he, he brings to them a greeting. And this greeting says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. I know that it is well with your soul. Some translations, when they take into account how we speak in English, would say, we hope you are prospering as your soul is prospering. So it would have spoken in general. It was, It's merely a friendly greeting that we send to each other all the time. It's not a declaration of a doctrinal reality. It's just, I hope you're well. I love you. I pray that your life is going well. I know your soul's going well because you know Jesus. And so may God bless you. That's kind of the effect of this. This is what this was. This first translation here is the Greek word for word. There is a version of the Bible called the Amplified, and it adds the word succeed. In every way you may succeed and prosper and be in good health. Well, what's happened is is there are some who call themselves the health and wealth gospel people who take this verse out of an amplified translation of the Bible, which is incorrect, and now run with that to say that Jesus wants all of us to be rich and successful and healthy. They've read their own presupposition onto an incorrect interpretation of the Greek text and have come to the conclusion that this verse says we should all be successful and prosperous and, uh, and if we have enough faith, we'll never get sick and presumably never die of an illness. It'll be something that happens when we're asleep late in life, which is really strange because For a Christian to be able to interpret this passage as an affirmation of the prosperity gospel, they would have to violate our first principle of hermeneutics, which is reading what other scriptures say. (laughs) Namely, Jesus said we should expect persecution and possibly death, like the original apostles, most of whom died for their faith. And Jesus saying that there's a lot more joy in giving than in receiving, you obviously know that the private jet buying televangelists don't get this. Have you been keeping up with this story? Another one of these crazies is out trying to raise tens of millions of dollars for his personal private jet because Jesus wouldn't fly coach. Um, I have my own private jet that um, Prism owns. Uh, This would be at this, uh, it's really nice, a little crowded, so I'm just going to go ahead and fly coach um, like Jesus would want me to. Christian charlatans, understand, aren't the only ones alone in reading presuppositions onto Scripture. Uh, Modern corrupt politicians use the words of Jesus and manipulate well-intentioned Christians to promote their political agenda. They use the Bible to validate perhaps one single political position while in the very next breath ignoring what Jesus has to say about a host of other issues, let alone that Many politicians give no evidence of actually following Jesus in their personal life. They're just using the language, the rhetoric of Christianity to get you amped up about following them politically. I would say to this, Jesus in Matthew 7 verses 15 through 20 says, Beware of false prophets, you who come... Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. I have one final kind of cultural integration application for this biblical principle. And that is that Bible critics will often slam the Apostle Paul's letters for teaching something that they don't like while ignoring that Jesus said virtually the exact same thing. Uh, The goal for politicians or anybody in all these cases, if we are going to read our presuppositions onto Scripture, is to try to get Scripture to validate our already determined desire and the outcome of what we think the Bible would say. This is, in the theological terms, a little side note for Bible nerds, this is called Isogesis. You are reading onto the Scripture as opposed to exegesis, taking what the Scriptures actually say. Isogetic interpretations of Scriptures impose on the text a predetermined outcome, which happens frequently when someone makes up their mind about a theological issue and then feigns some kind of deep dive study of the Bible to validate their already committed to position. This happens currently when some discount what the Apostles wrote kind of pitting them against what Jesus said in the Gospels, or they just dismiss completely what the Old Testament says because presumably they didn't know what we moderns know about life, the soul, any number of issues that culturally are now thought of to be much more enlightened than the biblical writers could have possibly known. And here's the rub. Uh, you may argue That the apostles, John, Peter, and Paul, were captive to their space and time and hindered by human development up to that point and disabled from seeing the universe as we do today. But you can't say that about Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. A person can't say on one hand, I believe in Jesus Christ, the eternal begotten Son of the Father, very God from very God through him, all things were made. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. My Jesus, who was a defender of women, a liberator of women. And then say, on the other hand, Jesus wasn't as enlightened as we are. He was afraid of and captive to his culture, which is why he discriminated against women and only chose men as apostles. Now, we may not understand why Jesus chose only men. That may be a complex thing that he never gave us detail to, but we do know that he knew what he was doing. We do know that he never sinned or acted unjustly toward anyone ever. We can say that about the Son of God. The humility we must all embrace as we come to Scripture is not to read onto the text what we want it to say. Assuming you believe the Bible to be God's word, whatever your stance on what we call non-essential or open-handed doctrinal issues, we must be charitable to those with whom we disagree. And if you are a male servant leader type of reformed theologian, let me just say, as one to another, gracious humility should be what marks your life. That should be. The defining characteristic of your life. Well, God may have enabled you by your spirit to believe you will one day be assessed as to how you stewarded the life He gave you to live for His glory and how well you loved others. That is going to happen. Which brings us full circle to one final application of the text, which is Jesus' statement that He was ascending which incorporates the idea that he will one day be, as the confessions and catechisms have said through the centuries, the one who judges the living and the dead. Lately, I've been citing Dr. Sproul a lot. For those of you who don't know, um, I was a student of his at Reformed Theological Seminary in the 90s and considered it a great honor to, to just be one of many who sat under his teaching. I found myself reflecting on his writings of late because he passed away this past spring and I've just thought about the number of ways he's, without really knowing me, I mean, he knew me at the time, like by a first name basis, like that's all, he didn't know my last name, but uh, we we obviously weren't closer friends. (laughs) I don't want to communicate that in any way. But his teaching has shaped my thinking in so many ways. And I would say more than he ever knew, certainly more than any of us ever knew, he now, right now, understands the significance of Christ's ascension. I mean, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, if Jesus really did ascend to the right hand of the Father, Dr. Sproul isn't speculating about that right now. He isn't theologically supposing it to be true. Dr. Sproul is a He wrote this once about Jesus. He was lifted up on the clouds of glory in order to go to his Father for the purpose of his coronation as our King. As the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he ascended into heaven to fulfill his role as our great high priest, interceding for his people daily. So he sits at the right hand of the Father, exercising his lordship over the whole world and his intercession before the Father on our behalf, on behalf of his people. He improves our condition dramatically. Not only this, but before Pentecost could come and the Holy Spirit could be poured out upon the church, empowering the church for its missionary enterprise to the whole world, it was necessary for Christ to ascend so that together with the Father, he might dispatch from heaven the Holy Spirit and all his power. This is the wonderful truth In four short verses of John chapter 7, we get to think and ponder that Jesus ascended and now is interceding for you right now. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus is your high priest and you can come to him and receive sympathy in your time of need. This is what it meant for Jesus to go away. He sent the Spirit to give us comfort as we sojourn through this land. Difficult and challenging as it may be in many aspects. But what he's promised is, is not only has he not left us alone and that he's given us the spirit to live in us, but don't for a second think that he doesn't know what's going on in your life and that he isn't compassionately pleading your case before the Father. He intercedes for you. He lives to do that. This is his joy. The, the, it, you should be blown away by this. In our world, when kings and princes are put on stage and celebrated and worshipped, when that whole coronation or wedding is over, they just go back into their palace and live large. They don't give two thoughts about you. That's not so with Jesus. He was coronated so that he could sit at the right hand of the Father and intercede for you. He's thinking about you. His heart and mind is of love towards you. And this is the hope we have. Not just a hope of eternal life, which is going to be incredible. We have the hope to know now that his thoughts are on his children whom he loves. So let's give thanks for that this morning.